Oh Lord, our hearts are grieved and weighed down as we are drawn into the narrative of this debacle. But it is not only because we see David's wickedness, it is because we reflect upon the mirror of our own souls. And we know there, but for the grace of God go we, and yet who amongst us is without sin. We are grieved by our own iniquity. And thank you that in the plenteous mercy of your grace, there are riches of cleansing and renewal, yea, even of regeneration. And so we bless you that you are able to change us from darkness to light, from sin to grace, from unrighteousness to righteousness, and all of this through your precious Son, the true and eschatological David. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, for all that he has accomplished on our behalf, and for the fact that he is indeed, in truth, our precious Savior. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1951, 20th Century Fox released a film entitled David and Bathsheba, starring Gregory Peck and Susan Hayward. It was the Hollywood blockbuster of the day, receiving no less than five Academy Award nominations. Hollywood's angle was to portray Uriah as the veterate, inveterate career soldier. A career soldier with no interest in his lovely wife, Susan Hayward. So she was lonely. David was lonely too. It's lonely at the top, especially at the top of the roof. And he needs a companion for his loneliness. Whammo! True romance. Bathsheba finds true love with David, and David finds a companion for his loneliness. Doesn't sound much like the biblical narrator's story of David's lust and Bathsheba and David's adultery. But of course, Hollywood at that time was about happy endings, even happy adulterous endings. Not to be outdone, in 1985, Paramount Studios released a film called King David with Richard Gere and Alice Krieg, Alice Krieg of Chariots of Fire fame. She plays Sybil Gordon, Harold Abrams' love interest in that film. 
But in this tawdry performance, she plays Bathsheba. Now Bathsheba, in the 1985 version, confides to David that her husband Uriah is an abuser. He knocks her around. David is shocked. And like a crusading protector of battered wives who do need protected, yes, they do, like a crusading protector of battered wives, David rescues the mistreated Bathsheba by committing adultery with her. That's Hollywood's formula for wife abuse. Adultery makes it better. The murder of Uriah becomes just retribution for injured innocence. He got what he deserved. Ha! Now, if this sounds like social consciousness raising, and a social consciousness raising flick of the 80s, you get the picture. But don't rent the movies. Particularly the gear version, it's tremendously salacious, and no, I haven't seen it, but you don't have to see it to know what's in it, because there are Christian movie review sites on the internet which will tell you all the unsavory details of hit movies, past and present. I use them routinely, and you have two of them on your handout. One of them is sponsored by Focus on the Family. I use them routinely to filter out the safe, clean videos from licentious, sadistic, and gory. And by gory, I mean those that trade and parade gratuitous violence with blood and heads and arms and severed limbs all over the screen, as if somehow that makes good viewing. That is ugliness to depravity. Now we have before us in this section of chapter 11, 14 and following a case of casuistry. Can anybody define casuistry for me? Casuistry comes from the word casuistic. And refers to a type of law. This type of law occurs in the Bible and is the opposite, or we might say the complement of apodictic law. So we have two categories of ethical or moral law in the Bible, the apodictic and the casuistic. Now, the apodictic is moral absolute law. Can you give me an example of absolute moral law? Thou shalt not murder. murder. Give me another example, Bob. What commandment is that since you brought it up? What number is it? Thou shalt. These preachers, they can't just keep their mouth shut, can they? Anyway. What what uh, what number is it, Mr. Preacher? Six. It is number six. All right. 
Somebody give me, Bob, I want to go back to you uh, on the on another absolute commandment and see if you had another idea. Thou shalt not steal. What number is that? That's no. <laughs> K, what number is thou shalt not steal? Six. No, he didn't. six is thou shalt not kill. No. Five? No. no. Rich? Seven. No. What's number seven since you brought it up? Adultery. Yes, number seven is thou shalt not commit adultery. So what's number eight? Steal. Thou shalt not steal. Okay. All right. Well, it'd be a good game for you to play, uh, those of you that are uh, into your senior years. You know, what number is one? What number is five? What number is six? Uh, Sunday afternoon, play a little game. See if you can name the number along with the commandment. You ought to be able to do it. You really ought to be able to do it. After all, you supposedly believe in them. All right. So, apodictic Ten Commandments. It's the do this and don't do that kind of commandment. All right, well then, what's casuistic? What's casuistic law? This is moral law, okay? What's casuistic law? Relative? No. It sounds like causative. Not causative. It is case law. It is if, then. If you have this situation, then you have that consequence. So, casuistry is dealing with evaluating a case. You don't have an actual moral commandment, but you are taking an apodictic or absolute commandment and trying to see how a case may be related to it. Okay? Now, we have a casuistical situation here in this section, chapter 11, verses 14 to 27. The casuistical question is this, what do you think? What do you think is worse, adultery or murder? What do you think? Or do you want to vote? How many think that adultery is worse than murder? I'm just asking your vote. I'm asking for your vote, okay? Okay, we have no vote, so I'm assuming that all of you are going to raise your hand and say murder is worse than adultery. Now, 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 what is this? The uh, cross-section of the American electorate? You all stay home and you don't vote? What? No, 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 no. In Denison's class, there are no neutral positions. You don't stay home from the polls. You risk your reputation or the lack of reputation. All right. Well, adultery is equal to murder in that you kill a marriage. You kill a relationship. You also affect other people by both sins. It's not just... I asked which one is worse. Rich, are you defending adultery as worse? Then murder? No. I'm you voting? You voting for that? All right. So here's the case before us, and we want to reflect upon our text in the light of that question. Does our narrator or does the narrative reflect upon this issue? 
Or taking your hand out, let's take a look at the Westminster Larger Catechism, which virtually none of you have ever read, because it's not in the back of the Trinity Hymnal, more is the pity. But notice question 150. Are all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous in themselves? What's the word heinous mean? Not really. What's the word heinous mean? It has that inflection. Give me a synonym for heinous. Not you. Loretta? What's heinous? Well, you got the right first letter. Yeah, heinous has a H synonym. Pete? Oh, you, you don't... Hellish. Hellish? Oh, I like that H. Yeah, it, it definitely is hellish. <clears throat> hateful. Heinous is hateful or odious. Okay, all right. So, <clears throat> there are all transgressions equally hateful or odious in themselves and in the sight of God. Answer, all transgressions of law are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Now, you instinctively said that when I asked you the casuistical question. You suggested that murder was worse than adultery. In other words, you were making a judgment based on the case of murder over against adultery that it was more hateful, that it was morally more reprehensible, and in fact, the larger catechism is agreeing with you on that point because notice that word there, that phrase, the several aggravations. I love that phrase. The aggravations of the sin. What makes the sin worse? And notice the list of those aggravations in question 151. One of those things is the person offending the person offending, the person committing the sin, makes it worse. So in David's case, what makes his adultery worse? Because he's the king. He's the leader in the community. What makes his murder worse? Because he's the king. He's the leader in the community. He's a paramount, he's a paragon of model virtue. At least he's supposed to be. Consequently, what is so insidious about all these social, celebrity, athletic icons being demonstrated to be just cesspools of filthy depravity is the fact that they are in the public eye and are regarded as persons of quality by their position. And lo and behold, we find they are persons of depravity by their moral inclinations. And so, because of their celebrity status, their sins are more aggravated, more odious to Almighty God. All right, I'm not going to go through all the four categories, but I want you to remember this background uh, phrase from the Catechism, several aggravations. What aggravates a sin which makes it even worse. And here are uh, four categories of what 
make a sin more odious in God's sight. All right, now, does our narrator, does our narrator agree with our conclusion, at least those of you who voted, and I'm proud of you who voted, and those of you that abstained, I'm ashamed of you, but at any rate, I'm proud of you who voted, and now I want to ask, does our narrator agree with your conclusion? How much of his narrative focuses on describing the adultery? Verse 2, he saw her. Verse 4, he took her and lay with her. Verse 5, she conceived. Okay, four verbs in three verses in which he describes the adulterous tryst. How much of his text focuses on describing the murder of Uriah? Verses 14 through 25 or 26. The bulk of his concentration in this narrative is upon David's murder. He agrees with your casuistical inclination that murder is worse than adultery. We are not assessing whether or not they are equally damn-worthy. That is not the question. There are degrees of damnation. Jesus says your damnation is greater. There are degrees of levels of hell, whether they are Dante's levels or not. But there are degrees of punishment. Some will receive greater damnation than others because of the aggravation of their sin. Dante at least has an instinct for a correct understanding of eternal punishment. But eternal punishment is eternal and there's no relief whether you're on a top level or whether you're on a bottom level. There's no remission of the eternal dimension. So they're all equally damn worthy. But some of them will receive more damnation than others. All right, the outline that I provided there in your handout is a uh, complete outline now of the entire 11th chapter, the occasion, the conjugation, the complication, the machination, the liquidation, and the extrication question mark. Now, we have a dominant light verter here in this unit. It is a word that occurs over and over again in verses 15 to 26, and it is the English word death or the Hebrew word moat. It occurs once in verse 15, once in 17, twice in 21, twice in 24, and 26. The death of Uriah is a key word in this unit. And the irony, the irony of the narrative is that Uriah carries his own writ of execution. He is the messenger that bears his own death sentence. Does he know what he carries? Does he know what's in the packet? Does he know the missive that he bears? What do you think? Yes or no? Kay says no. 
Carol says yes. He's too honorable to open it, right? Yes, but there are modern commentators who say that he did know and he resigned to his fate. Oh, garbage. That's Islamic fatalism. Don't give me any of that. No, he is innocently and unbeknownst to himself because David is hiding it from him, carrying his own death warrant. Now, notice Joab. Joab in verse 14 reminds us of Joab in verse 6 and again in verse 1. Here we return to the proximate and remote vectors that our narrator is projecting. These are vectors of venue. The proximate venue is Jerusalem. The remote venue is, where is Joab? Anyone? He is in Rabbah. He is in Rabbah. So, with the interface between the proximate and remote venues, is Joab drawn into the proximate circle of David's intrigue, even though he is remote from the scene? Is Joab drawn into the proximate circle of David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba? Or let me ask the question this way. Does Joab know about David and Bathsheba? Did I hear somebody say yes? How do you know? From what? From the interaction of the narrative. Okay, but what... What section of the narrative tells you that he knows? I'm looking. Now, you're not supposed to answer the question unless you know where the answer is in the text. <laughs> All right. Did you find it yet, Pete? No, I'm only on verse 22. Well, you move beyond it. It is in verse 21. 21. Notice what Joab says. He refers back to Judges 9 and describes an incident of a femme fatale. Abimelech died from a femme fatale. Uriah is going to die from a femme fatale. How does Joab even know to associate what David wants to do with Abimelech's murderers, because he knows what David has done. That's how. So the narrative tells you that Joab is, though remotely removed, proximately in the know. How he knows, we don't know, but he does. And he tells us in verse 21 that he does. Now, there is a bracket here that ties together this section Verses 14 and following, you will notice the phrase to Joab in verse 14, El Yoav in the Hebrew, and in verse 25, to Joab again, which closes the incident, El Yoav. We have a small incusio around this narrative section. Joab is tied to David 
by opening and closing the narrative unit. David is using Joab. The interplay between the two is intentional on the part of the narrator, not only because it's historically true, but because the narrator is featuring it. Why? Deja vu? Deja vu? What will Joab do in this incident, in this narrative unit? What will he do? He will betray a servant of the king, will he not? He will betray a fellow soldier, will he not? He will betray one who pledged loyalty and friendship to David, Uriah, one of David's mighty men, a loyal follower of the king. Deja vu? What did Joab do to Abner? What did Joab do to Abner? Betrayed a servant of the king? Betrayed a fellow soldier? Betrayed one who had pledged loyalty and friendship to David? Does Joab suffer a crisis of conscience when he receives the epistle from David? Is he caught between a rock and a hard place? Is Joab trying to sort out now, should I obey the king or should I save my friend's life? Is that what's going through Joab's mind? Or let's take the casuistical question again. What should you do if you get a letter from the king, such as Joab has received? You throw over your friend? Or you send a letter back to the king and say, not on my life, nor on yours. What should you do? What would... What we wanted Hitler's army to do, defy his orders. Yes. But what does Joab do? He sends Uriah to his death. He throws over his friend, even though he threw over Abner. Crisis of conscience in Joab, not on your life. Joab acts like Joab. Perfectly in character is Joab here. How is he perfectly in character? I killed Abner in cold blood. Now David kills Uriah in cold blood. He won't dare touch me because he's just like me. He's just like me and he's neutered himself. He's neutered himself from dealing with me in matters of murderous blood feuds. He'll never touch me. I know too much. Rich? Well, he'll eventually betray David, too, later on, when he sides with uh, Absalom. Uh, No, he doesn't side with Absalom. You mean Adonijah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, at the end of David's life. Correct. Uh, So he is uh, consistent to the end, so to speak. But there's a lot in between in which, as uh, I'm trying to demonstrate now, 
uh, Joab's character is going to continue to demonstrate itself as bloody pragmatism. So, the proximate vector makes Joab a virtual David on the battlefield. The narrator is drawing the roles of proximate and remote into harmony and concordance because Joab plays the role of a surrogate king on the battlefield of Rabbah. He is a murderer and a traitor to one of his soldiers and friends, just as that guy back in Jerusalem is a murderer and a traitor to one of his soldiers and friends. Notice this remarkable narrative interface between the remote and proximate characters in this unit. And not only is Joab drawn into the circle of David's murderous scheme, who else is surrounded by the circle of death? No, not yet. Verses 17 and 24. Who else is drawn into the circle of death? (coughs) David's servants die. Notice the parallel duplication in those two verses. In verse 17, servants of David. In verse 24, servants of the king. An emphatic duplication as well as an historic eyewitness testimony. David's sin draws others into its circle, its circle of treachery and death. But why are others killed? Notice David's letter in verse 15. David's letter says, put Uriah in front, pull back from Uriah, Uriah will then die and no one else. But others do die. Now, why do they die? Honorable. Pardon? They're honorable. They're the mighty men. No. It's a war. Yes, but David had said, leave Uriah and retreat. They wouldn't leave Uriah. But what does Joab order? Does Joab order, leave Uriah and retreat? Obviously he didn't, because there are those who get killed with Uriah. Some of of them were more concerned about their compatriot Uriah rather than obeying Joab's order to retreat. I doubt it. Pardon? Maybe he's bearing the evidence. Well, he's not quite bearing the evidence, but he knows that if Joab does what David wants Joab to do, and only Uriah dies while everyone else retreats, what's everyone else going to conclude? Joab, you murdered Uriah. You pulled everybody back and left him stand there and take the heat. So, 
Joab has a plan, doesn't he? Joab's got his own scheme, his own machination. The scheming David finds a partner in a devious partner in the remote location of Rabbah and equally scheming Joab. Aha, David wants me to leave him there. <clears throat> I'm not going to get accused of murder. Not by my soldiers. Not if I got to lead these guys into battle. I'm not on your life. So somebody else is going to bite the dust too so that it looks as if they just got caught in a bad strategic move. Draw the Ammonites out in the open, verse 23. Counterattack, drive them back to their gates, verse 23. And then under the archery fire coming down from the walls, Uriah and some others will be killed, verse 24. But it'll look like it was a military accident. Great strategy. Great logistical strategy. It's stupid. It's stupid, as David notes. And he hits the ceiling in verses 20 and 21. Now, here you have the narrator telling you what David's reaction was from the standpoint of Joab's description. You don't actually see that in David's reaction, except insofar as it's been projected by Joab. And the narrator lets it stand because it's exactly how it happened. David did hit the ceiling when the messenger came back and said, yeah, well, they've chased them back up to the gates. And, and David says, chase them back up to the gates? They're right under their, the walls. They're right where the, the archers could pick them off, right, by just shooting right down on top. What kind of stupid action was that on Joab? And Uriah... Is dead. Oh, 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 that's a tough thing about war. That's a tough thing about war. You lose some of your best friends. If the bullet's got your name on it, you know, what can you do? The sword devours one as well as the other. Verse 25. It's fate. Or to borrow a famous line from another Hollywood flick, it's just bad luck. Well, the hypocrisy of this whole incident <clears throat> is demonstrated in the way the narrator holds up the mirror from Joab to David and vice versa. <clears throat> in verse 26, you are introduced to Joab one more time. Why? Because the narrator wants you to mourn for this most unjustly murdered man. You notice that he's named twice in that verse. Two times you remember his name. He's called a husband in that verse. That's what he was. He was a devoted husband. His wife mourns him in that verse, but you mourn him more poignantly than she. For she is saving face. Does Bathsheba know? Does Bathsheba know that David had her husband murdered? 
Or is this David's dirty little secret? Hmm. Is this David's dirty little secret that he brings to his marriage with Bathsheba? Hmm. Hmm. Does she know? Does David tell her? Does she find out? Hmm. Verse 27 indicates that there is a time of mourning. How long is a time of mourning? Can we figure that out? How long does she wear black? How long does she put on the widow's weeds? This is not Victorian England where you wear them for a year. Yes, we do have a suggestion even in the David narrative. If you go back to 1 Samuel 31, verse 13, you remember that the citizens or inhabitants of Jabesh had mourned Saul's death, Saul and Jonathan's death, for seven days. So, a seven-day mourning period, and then David sent for her. Remember verse 4 and verse 3? Oh, verse 27 carries the echoes of the earlier narrative. Those echoes return at the end of the narrative. David sent for her. David brought her. Verse 4, he took her. She becomes his wife. Verse 26, she was Uriah's wife. Verse 4, David had lain with her. She bore him a son. Verse 27, verse 5, I am pregnant. The echoes of the beginning of the narrative re-echo at the end of the narrative. But why the rapid transition? Why does David quickly, after seven days, bring her to his palace as his wife? Better move quickly before she begins to show. Before she begins to show and people will talk and then I'm going to have to do some more explaining, or she will. David, at the end of chapter 11, can finally breathe a sigh of relief. His cover-up, his careful cover-up has succeeded. After having failed with Uriah no less than three times, after enlisting loyal Joab, loyal murderous Joab, as an accessory, as an accomplice, accomplice as his henchman in this murderous plot, after enlisting Joab, an efficient, ruthless Joab arranges the dastardly deed. After all this, David's scheme is a success. He has the woman as his wife, no less with a son, a love child, as they call adultery these days. Dare not call it a lust child. That's not very romantic. After all, adultery is romantic, right? David is home free. Bathsheba is home free. Shalom has come back to Yerushalayim. 
But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. The last word in chapter 11 is the word of God's omniscience. Did you think, David, that God did not see? God did not see that oogling eye full of lust of yours? Did you think, David, that God did not see you take and lie with that other man's wife? Did you think that God did not see her pregnancy? Hear her announcement, I am pregnant? Did you think that God did not see your pitiful scheme to pass off the child to her husband even to the point of getting him drunk? Did you think that God did not see you write the letter sealing Uriah's death warrant and put it in his hand, the messenger of his own execution? Did you think that God did not see you send that black spot with that innocent soldier? Did you think, David, that God did not see Joab join your plot, compounding your sin with Joab's own iniquity? Did you think that God did not see Joab Leave Uriah to die. In fact, orchestrate his death at the base of the walls of Rabbah. David, do you think that God did not see your fawning hypocrisy after you hit the roof about Joab's tactics in front of the walls of Rabbah? Do you think, David, that God did not see you take Uriah's wife as your wife? Do you think, David, that God did not see the son born of your adultery and Bathsheba's adultery? David, do you really think that you could hide this from God who sees your every move, looks down on your every act, from over top of you, David, reads your every thought, knows what your mind beheld, your heart coveted, your will chose, and your body indulged, your mouth schemed, and your hand wrote. Did you really think, David, that you could hide all of this from God like Adam in the garden that God would not know what you have done in every ugly detail for what David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord for God saw every narrative detail that we have rehearsed in the last two weeks. He saw it all.
Now notice how the chapter is broadly organized with verses 2 to 4, describing the adultery between David and Bathsheba, and then verses 26 and 27, describing the marriage between David and Bathsheba, and squeezed in between is the murder of Uriah. There are also some interesting uh, locale uh, shifts in verses 14 to 26. You'll notice that in verse 14, we begin with the scene in Jerusalem. We move to Rabbah in verses 16 to 21, back to Jerusalem in verse 22, back to Rabbah in verses 23 to 25, and finally and conclusively in Jerusalem in verse 26. This change or shift in vectors Change and shift in remote and proximate characters or venues dominates Second Samuel 11 verses 14 to 27, and they provide the interface, the interface of the narrative ripples that are ebbing from this drama. We cry out, Lord Jesus, save us. Kyria eleison, Lord have mercy upon sinners such as we are, lest we presumptuously think that God does not see our secret sins and our not-so-secret sins. Let us flee to Christ and to the cleansing fountain of grace, mercy, forgiveness, New life, a new heart, new obedience. Let us flee to heaven. Let us flee to the eschaton and live from an arena where there is no adultery, no deceit, no hypocrisy, no murder. No death. Let us live out of the kingdom of heaven. For that is where we belong. And that is where our conversation arises. Our ethics are the ethics of heaven. Those are the moral, ethical absolutes to which we are called by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Any questions about chapter 11? Any comments? Now, I've used this image of rippling layers like the ripples on a pond when you throw a stone into it. And those ripples move out <coughs> into other circles. I'm going to use that 
image again here in chapter 12 and begin with asking whose story intersects in a rippling layer of narrative drama with David's story here in this chapter. It is Nathan, and where have we met Nathan before? Because we have, we can say rippling layers because we have antecedents and succedents in the narrative drama. Where did we meet Nathan for the first time? Chapter 7, in the revelation of God's promise to David and to David's house. Now, chapter 12 is actually hooked to chapter 11. Uh, We would deduce that automatically anyway, but the narrator places a hook word here. It is the word that ends the 11th chapter, and it is the second word that begins chapter 12. It is the word Yahweh, or the word translated in English, Lord. The Lord who had seen the evil of David, who had been an eyewitness to all that David had said and done, is the Lord who sends Nathan to David. Now, who else interfaces, or who others who else's story ripples in a narrative interface with uh, <clears throat> David's story in this chapter. <clears throat> Pardon? <clears throat> yes. <clears throat> yes. <clears throat> It's the characters in Nathan's story in verses 1 to 4. You will notice the bracket around this unit. The story itself is folded in by an inclusio. Nathan is sent in verse 1. That is, he comes to David. And Nathan went in verse 15. His role is concluded in this opening section of chapter 12. Then in verse 15, David and Uriah's widow, as some versions have it, or Uriah's wife, as it could literally be translated, uh, make up the beginning of that narrative uh, unit in this chapter. And in verse 24, we find closure of that with David and his wife Bathsheba. And finally, verses 26 to 31 are set where? At Rabbah in Ammon, which takes us back to chapter 11, verse 1. Because, as we pointed out last week, we have the bookends of the David and Bathsheba narrative, 11.1, in Rabbah of Ammon, and 12.26-31 in Rabbah 
of Ammon. <clears throat> the narrator has bookended the <clears throat> uh, David and, and uh, Bathsheba story. All right, back to verses 1 to 15. You will notice that in this section, there is no narrative action. There is no narrative drama. There is only dialogue, only speech. Nathan speaks, verses 1 to 4. David speaks, verses 5 to 6. Nathan speaks, verses 7 to 12. David speaks in verse 13a. Nathan speaks for the final time in verse 13b, 14. The narrative ripples unfold by way of dialogue. Well, how long has it been? How long has it been since what is sandwiched between the bookends of the incident at Rabah? It's been at least what? Been at least nine months. And if we add the seven days plus of mourning, we could conceivably say it's been ten months from chapter 11, verse 27. And in that ten-month period, all that time, no compunction in David, no contrition in David, no confession in David, No repentance in David. No remorse for what he has done. Well, what about Nathan's story? What would you call this, verses 1 to 4? Put a label on it. Rich says parable. Yes, possibly a parable. I won't. I won't, uh, pardon? Allegory? Allegory, um, no. Why? Why do I reject allegory? (coughs) How does David hear this story? He doesn't identify it. How does he hear it? Does he hear it as a parable? Does he hear it as an allegory? He hears it as an historic event, correct. He hears it as if it is an actual description of something that had happened. Is that an allegory? Allegory does not need history. Please, please be very careful of that term. Allegory, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. Holy War is an allegory. Tower of Gaburah is an allegory. Narnia is an allegory, but it is not historical. You see, history is the key to the Bible, not allegory. If it were allegory, all we needed, then we could tell Aesop's allegorical fables, etc., and have nice little moral applications. That's not what the Bible is about. Allegory is not dependent upon history. And that's what's so tragic 
about the charge that is thrown into the teeth of the greatest of the Greek commentators in the ancient church origin, where he's labeled an allegorist, he would rise up in holy horror and say that you are lying and slandering him. He's no allegorist. Read him. Read what he wrote. Stop repeating and mouthing false accusations against a great church father. He is no allegorist, as anybody knows that has read what he's written. But of course, if you haven't read what he's written, then you just throw out what somebody told you. Yes, he's an Alexandrian allegorist. No, he's not. Yes, he's a Philonic allegorist. No, he's not. Because you haven't read what he wrote. Don't tell me what I believe until you read what I've written. Don't do that to me and don't do it to anybody. Read, listen to the primary documents. Don't go around repeating what other people have said who haven't read anything. All right, so we're not dealing with allegory here. We're dealing with a parable but a parable which David presumes is an actual concrete historical case. Now, let's look at the contrasts in the case as he hears it. We have an obvious contrast between rich man and the poor man. And we have a secondary contrast between the rich man's large herds and flocks and the poor man's one you lamb. And we have a contrast between the abusive or exploitative character of the rich man and the vulnerable or powerless character of the poor man. And we have a contrast between the oppressor rich man and the oppressed poor man. And we also have a contrast in the narrative close-up or the camera close-up. You have any close up of the rich man? Beyond the fact that he's rich, abusive, oppressive, do you have any personal close up details of the rich man? Or what about that poor man? And that one you lamb who ate his bread? who drank from his cup, who lies in his lap. Ah, now look at the personal element in the poor man. This is a masterpiece. This is a masterpiece. It's a literary masterpiece because it draws you into the stark contrast between the characters. Who is this rich man? He is David. And what are his flocks and herds? His harem, exactly. And who is the poor man? And what is his one ewe lamb? Bathsheba. Notice the mastery of the contrast. When David hears in verse 5, he reacts with a lex talionis, 
String him up. He ought to be hung from the highest tree. Is that the Lex Talionis? The Lex Talionis, the law of retaliation or the law of just retribution. What is the principle of the Lex Talionis? It's found in the scriptures. It's found in all principles of common civil and natural law. What is the Lex Talionis? Eye for an eye. What's the principle? What's the underlying principle? You're quoting a passage, but what's the principle underneath the passage? The punishment is to fit the crime. Is this in verse 5 that David says, string him up, is that punishment fit the crime? No, it does not. And in verse 6, it's almost as if he realizes that he has overreacted. He's had the knee jerk in hearing the story, okay, <clears throat> saying, string him up, oops, whoops, I forgot. <clears throat> there is a law about restitution. And the law actually comes from Exodus 22, verse 1. <clears throat> that if a man <clears throat> has killed another man's sheep or lamb, he is to restore fourfold. But, oh, that fourfold term. It's ominously proleptic, is it not? Why do I say that? Ominously proleptic. Retribution fourfold. And the child dies. <coughs> and Amnon dies. And Absalom dies. And Adonijah dies fourfold. Verse 7 is the mirror held up to David's face. The King James gets it. No other version grabs it. Thou art the man. Now that That'll pierce you through. You are the man. Ah. Nah. Nah, 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 nah. Yes, we got to pull out the king's English every once in a while. Queen's English as well. Now, David, of course, has passed sentence on himself in verse 5. Ironically, the man that has done this deserves to die. David, thou art the man. This story of Nathan's is David's story. It is his history. A story of depravity, adultery, treachery, death, and unjust Murder. So that now the prophet brings the prophetic oracle. Notice, verse 7, 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel. That is stereotypical, prophetic, oracular judgment. And he repeats it in verse 11. Thus says the Lord, you're going to get a prophetic pronouncement, David. Here it comes. So that this oracular judgment is bracketed by two thus saith the Lord expressions. It is as if God himself is standing before David in the person of his prophet, thus says the Lord. These are the consequences of what I've seen you do. Now you will notice... That the focus of Nathan in verses 9a through 10a is the murder of Uriah. And then in verse 10b, all the way through 11 and 12, he focuses on the adultery with Bathsheba. All of which reinforces our conclusion back when we are looking at chapter 11, verse 14 and following, that murder is more heinous than adultery. Even the prophet Nathan spends more time in his description of the one than he does the other, as if to shift the weight to the odiousness of murder, as well as the wretchedness of the adultery. Notice... the aggravation of the sin that Nathan points out. See, the Westminster divines have their fingers on something, comes right out of the text of Scripture in a number of occasions, and here you're going to see it. In verse 8 of chapter 12, God gave and God gave. Twice, God gave. But verse 9 and 10, you took and you took. You aggravated what God gave to you. You made it more hateful in God's sight because of what you had been granted twice over. God gave, God gave. You took and you took. Verse 9, why? Notice the why. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? What kind of a question is that? Is it a question where Nathan is really asking for an answer? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is already implicit in the question. You have despised the word of the Lord. And the pivot verse, verse 10, the hinge verse in the oracular judgment, the sword will not depart. Why will the sword not depart? Verse 9, because you struck Uriah with the sword. You will receive the lex talionis, David. The measure with which you measured out the sword will be measured back to you, David. What you have reaped, sown, you shall reap, David. What goes around shall come around, David. Believe me, I am a God of just retribution. And don't Christians ever forget it. Don't think that just because you came into the New Testament era that God doesn't deal out just retribution. Don't think he doesn't. He does. He still does. Don't you dare defy him and ask for the consequences. 
you despised me. And what else did you despise besides me? You despised my word. And because you despised me and my word by what you have done flagrantly and openly, I will raise up evil against you from within your own house. Verse 11. Because you have aggravated this sin in my sight, the nations, the nation will witness David's punishment. You did it in secret. I will expose you in broad daylight. All Israel will see. And Absalom lays with David's concubines in broad daylight. Contemptuous of his father and the word of God. Moreover, lest the enemies of Israel blaspheme the name of the Lord God, verse 14, the child will die. He will not live to be a reminder of what you have done from the first day of his youth until he is a teenager, until he is an 80-year-old man. He will not live to be a reminder of of your blasphemy I will take him and in verse 13 David confesses I have sinned against the Lord where else does he confess anyone Psalm 51 51. I want to I want you to notice in this verse the inversion notice the inversion in verse 13 I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord has taken away your sin. I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord has taken away your sin. Perfect inversion, reversal. David deserves to die. David should die. He should be executed. What is this then for God to set aside David's deserved punishment? What is it? But grace. Grace, God's grace. Always God's grace sets aside deserved, merited, worthy punishment. Pardon? David had not yet produced the progenitor of Christ at this point either. Yeah, it is, it is true, but uh, as in the case of uh, all sinners, uh, he is, that progenitor is in his loins, so to speak, as, as is said of Abraham. <clears throat> but, uh, yes, that is a, a, an accurate observation. All right, let's turn to Psalm 51. Since we are right in the historic context of that psalm, let's take a look at Psalm 51. A psalm of confession, repentance, brokenness, humiliation, no self-justification, 
no excuse, no qualification, no exculpation. Let's line out the structure of the song. As you scan the first nine verses, this is the language of what? The language of confession. That's correct. And the vocabulary of what? kind of words do you read in those first nine verses? The vocabulary emphasizes what words? Sin is one. Evil, inequity, mercy, mercy. Sin, transgression, guilt. Justice. So that the uh, guilt of sin, shame of sin, guilt of transgression, iniquity, etc. That's the vocabulary that... uh, is found in these first nine verses. All right, now look at verses 11 to 19. Verses 11 to 19. And you have the language of what? This is not the language of confession. Mm. Think a little deeper. Restoration, good, you're close. It's the uh, language of reconciliation. And what kind of vocabulary do we have in this section? Do you see any sin, transgression, iniquity? Do you see that kind of vocabulary there? No, but you do see the vocabulary of joy and salvation, which, of course are the attendants of reconciliation. All right, so we have two large units of the psalm, language of confession, I'm sorry, yes, language of confession, vocabulary of guilt and sin, language of reconciliation, and vocabulary of joy and salvation. But you'll notice that I skipped verse 10. 1 to 9, 11 to 19, I skipped over verse 10. Why? Because verse 10 is the hinge of the song. It's the pivot upon which the psalm swings. It is the verse in which we move like a hinge from confession to reconciliation. Verse 10 is the center of the psalm. There are nine verses before verse 10. There are nine verses after verse 10. It is right in the center of the psalm. And what is the center of verse 10? The center of verse 10 is the word God. There are four Hebrew words before the word God in verse 10, and there are four Hebrew words after the word God in verse 10. God is the center of the psalm. God is the center of David's confession and reconciliation. 
Psalm 51 is a theocentric psalm structurally, God-centered structurally. Psalm 51 is a Christocentric psalm, redemptive historically. For who else is the center of forgiveness and reconciliation for a New Testament believer, let alone for David, whom he saw by faith afar off? Who else saves us from our sins but Jesus Christ? Psalm 51, theocentric and Christocentric, because there is no other way to be saved, even for David in the Old Testament, than by the grace of the Lord Jesus. Psalm 51 drives David by faith to Christ. He apprehends him and appropriates him by confession, repentance, and faith. He holds on to the Christ who will eventually be incarnate. Psalm 51 becomes even richer for sinners such as we are because of the surpassing riches of God in Christ Jesus by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Do you not read this psalm and confess, this is me, this Psalm describes me. And do you not read this psalm and fall down on your knees, as John Calvin would say, let us fall down on our knees before God. At the end of virtually every sermon he ever preached, let us now fall down on our knees before God. Do we not read this psalm and fall down on our knees before God and bless the Lord Jesus Christ for washing away our sin. Notice the imperatives in verse 10. That central verse, that hinge verse, the imperatives. Do create in me, O Lord. It is imperative that you, O Lord, create in me a clean heart. No other power can create a clean heart from an unclean heart save the power of the creator of heaven and earth. Create in me, O Lord, creator. If this wretched heart of guilt and shame is to be made new, you, Lord, must recreate it. You must renew the power of the new creation within my heart. I plead with you, Lord. I beg you, Lord, put forth your creative power your almighty creative power and renew, recreate an upright spirit within me. You, O Lord, can do it. I beg you, I plead you to do it for me. It is imperative 
that you create this in me what is A and what is more than A, namely B, that you renew this in my heart. Notice that parallelism, that expansive parallelism, what is A and what is more than A is B in this line. You, Lord, only you, Lord. You alone, Lord, not me. Not me. You, Lord Jesus, you dear, precious Savior of sinners, such as I am, the chief of whom I am. The structure of verses 1 to 9 is reinforced. It is reinforced by a word that ends verse 9 and a word which appears at the end of verse 1. It is the word, one Hebrew word, translated by two English words, blot out. We have a virtual inclusio bracketing this unit of the psalm, blot out my transgressions, verse 1, matched by blot out my iniquities, verse 9. Now, you may suspect that verses 11 to 19 would also have an inclusio feature, and they do, only it is not an inclusio of a word or a phrase. Rather, it is an inclusio of position. Position. Notice the plea of verse 11. Do not cast me away from your presence. Literally, the Hebrew is, do not cast me away from before your face, O Lord. And the presence of the Lord, the position of the place from which his face shone forth in its glory upon his worshiping people, the presence of the Lord shone forth from Zion, verse 18, from Jerusalem, verse 18, from the place where one positioned oneself before the face of the Lord with sacrifices, with young bulls and burnt offerings. Does not David, in his state of reconciliation after confession, bring the tokens of his thanksgiving and present them before the face of his gracious, merciful, forgiving Lord? Does he not bring his sacrifices as tokens of his penitent heart to the tabernacle of the Lord in Jerusalem on Zion? to the tent of meeting where he meets the presence of God, to the altar of substitutionary atonement, to the court of God's presence where he may joyfully bask in the face of the presence of God, delighting in his Lord who has delighted in him, delighted in David's sinful, penitent, remorseful, Joyful David. So, verses 11 to 19 are also bracketed 
as verses 1 to 9 are bracketed, so verses 11 to 19 are bracketed, bracketed by the presence motif, a presence motif which is located in Jerusalem on Mount Zion where sacrifices and burnt offerings are brought into God's presence, consumed before his face, his gracious, loving, forgiving face. So that we structurally outline Psalm 51 verses 1 to 9 as a bracket, verse 10 as the center of the psalm, verses 11 to 19 as a bracket. Once again, the psalm is precisely structured in two bracketed units centered around the hinge of God's own name, dead center. And what is a clean heart, verse 10? What is an upright spirit, verse 10? The answer in verse 17, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Notice in verse 10, Heart, spirit, spirit. Heart, precise chiastic mirror. The text defines the theology of contrition. Contrition, grieving over our sin, ashamed of it, weighed down with how offensive it is to God against thee, the only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Broken by it, broken with shame, broken with remorse, broken with grieving and offending God's holy face. Such brokenness, such grief for our sin, such shame and contrition, the Lord will not despise. He will not despise a broken and contrite heart. No, he will not despise such penitence, for he delights in such sorrow. His face beams with joy at such brokenness. His presence breaks forth in streams of grace and mercy and love. And the renewal, the renewal of a right spirit. And in these last days, He is even more delighted in such confession and repentance because his son, his beloved son, Jesus Christ, stands before his face, stands in his presence as a burnt offering and sacrifice on your behalf. And the face of God the Father shines forth upon the scarred, battered, thorn-pierced face of his beloved Son. 
And from the mouth of that beaming face of God the Father comes the echo of the cry of God the Son. It is finished. It is finished. Your sin is finished. Forgiven. Canceled. Over because my Son, my delight, my very presence in the flesh, my Son was broken for your sin. My son was shamed by your sin. My son took your sin, your adulterous, murderous, wicked sin with all its several aggravations. My son took your sin and guilt on himself so that my face in shining upon him may shine upon you. This psalm of David is your psalm, you who belong to the eschatological David, you who have been united to the shame and brokenness of the Son of God, you who have been granted, graciously granted, the joy of salvation in these last days. Now we come back to 2 Samuel 12. And note that in verse 14, there is no double standard in God's judgment. The child's death is to remove this hypocrisy and blasphemy on the part of David. But in verse 16, David goes to inquire of the Lord for the child. He has been told the child is going to die, but he goes to inquire of the Lord for the child. Why? Why does he do this? Because he doesn't believe the word of the Lord again? He tells us why he did it in verse 22. This is like the Apostle Paul's peradventure, and there's that good King James language again. Peradventure, peradventure, God may grant. Verse 22, who may know that God, the Lord, may be gracious, the child may live. And so he begs and pleads for the light verter in verses 17 to 23, the key word, in this section, very much like the key word in chapter 11, verses 14 to 25, the key word death, three times in verse 18, three times in verse 19, once in 21, once in 23, key word death may be averted. Notice his position in verse 16. He is laying on the ground completely passive. Contrast with verse 20. He gets up from the ground where he's completely active. Is the narrator once again interfacing 
a ripple here into the story of David. David's mourning and woe, a mirror of his own death to his own sin. The child's death becomes a reflection of David's mortification of his own sin. And he lies passively on the ground as one as though he were dead to mirror the death of the child, his own deathly sin. Notice the interplay of life and death in the dialogue of the servants, verse 18 and 21, life and death, the interplay. And in David's comments in verses 19 and 22, the interplay of life and death. In verse 23, David climaxes the interplay with an anticipation of his own death and the child's life. He shall not come to me. I shall go to him. There is no return. How can I bring him back? There is no return. Hebrew word shuv. There is no conversion. There is no turnabout from the grave. There is no second chance. There is no coming back. Which means that only in life. Is there hope for repentance and conversion? Death slams the door. But notice also that whatever the sin, whatever the sin, no soul ever embraced the remedy, repentance and faith, which is conversion. No soul ever embraced the remedy and died. By the same token, whatever the sin, no soul ever escaped death who did not embrace the remedy. David embraces the remedy, death to himself, and life as he rises up from the ground before the face of the Lord who has forgiven his Transgression. And in verse 24, what do we notice? We notice the name Bathsheba for the first time since verse 3 of chapter 11. Always. From 11.4 to chapter 12, verse 23, she is the wife of Uriah. And now, Bathsheba. Why? Because the narrator is drawing closure upon the crime, and it is settled so that her name can be used in its new relationship as the wife of David, the account 
is closed and the record is cleansed. And she may be named now with her name of honor. And the child, the child that is born is called loved of the Lord. Loved of the Lord as a ratification of closure again. God has reversed the sentence of death upon one child with the gift of life to another. Beloved of himself. Even as David has been restored to the love of God. And may we hope the same of Bathsheba. We may hope though we do not know confidently. His name, Shalomo. Shalomo. Derived from Shalom. His name, Peace, which has returned to David's house. David's house now is Closed in the envelope of God's shalom. And Solomon is the testimony to that restored and renewed peace. But not only has shalom come to David's house in Jerusalem. At Rabbah. In the international venue. Peace has come to the frontier of David's conflicts. At home and abroad, shalom echoes, for God has closed the book on the incident of David and Bathsheba. The personal consequences are over, but the ripples will continue. To ebb. For chapter 13 is on the horizon, and Shalom will be disturbed in the very next scene of David's life. One final observation on this 12th chapter, and that is on verse 31. The verse in most English translation looks as if David is a brutal murderer. He has returned to his uh, Uriah ways, only he's done it in terms of these uh, individuals who have been captured in Rabbah. This verse is an extremely difficult piece of Hebrew to translate. Everyone acknowledges it. It is virtually impossible to render accurately. And so I am going to give you what I believe is the best reading, and it will take away the reproach that you may hold over David for the reading in your version. Here is a translation from J.P. Fockelman, whom I believe is perhaps one of the greatest Hebraists of our age. This is how he says, 
He, David, put them to work with stone saw, iron pickaxe, iron axe, and let them work. Notice, Fockelman suggests that the reading is not David executing these people with these implements, but rather David putting them to work as forced labor, not only to rebuild Rabbah, but also to rebuild other portions of his empire. It is quite significant that in several 17th century commentaries, Fockelman's translation, which he proposes, is also echoed and re-echoed, not in exactly the same words, but in a paraphrase of that meaning. So that we walk away from verse 31 with perhaps the most accurate translation of a very difficult Hebrew passage in which David is not a uh, murderous brute, but is rather subjecting his uh, conquered uh, the conquered individuals to what would be called forced labor gangs. That's certainly better than murdering them. And so, I'll let that suggested translation stand. <clears throat> from the broad step back from 2 Kings, 2 Samuel 12 to 1 Kings 2, we are going <clears throat> to behold a David who seems to undavid himself all the way to his death. The David of 1 Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel 11 is lost to the narrative that is in front of us. David adrift in the consequences of his exceedingly heinous sin, even to disgrace which will increase upon him as these chapters unfold, even to death, shivering, cold, no heat, death. You see, that little incident at the end of his life is indicative of the coldness that has crept into his character. It is not that he has been abandoned by the grace of God, as we see from Psalm 51. But we are not going to see a David very joyful and exultant from this point on. Nathan's prophecy will be filled out in the narrative consequences of the unfolding ripples of David's ebbing career. There are those throughout the history of the church who have looked upon this fact as a defense of the accuracy and integrity of the scriptures, namely 
that David is not sanitized from his sin and its consequences, and the Bible tells it like it is. You won't hear that about Muhammad. You won't hear that about Buddha. You won't hear that about other founders of world religions. They are completely squeaky clean in the hagiographical narratives. Yes, that is an apologetic observation, which I think is accurate. God does not cover over the warts of his beloved sons and daughters. But at the same time, we must penetrate more deeply into the narrator's purpose. There are reasons for the choice of narrative incidents from chapter 13 to the end of David's life. And those choices are based upon Nathan's statement here in chapter 12. The sword will not depart from you, David. What you have sown, you shall reap. And you know that Paul repeats that phrase in the New Testament. There are consequences from your sin. And they can haunt you all the way to the day of your death. All of which means you hang on to the grace of Christ even more intensely because that is your only hope and salvation. David does. Yes, he does, even though his life ebbs into needing a heat warmer for his cold body at the end of his life. And so I'm warning you from next week on, we are not going to see very many pleasant incidents in David's career. But we're going to see and learn a great deal about the consequences of sin and the tolerance of sin and the indulgence of sinners. Any questions or comments? Pete? Just to let you know that the NIV has as you Thou art the man? No. Or as, oh, as that proposed translation. Yes. That's the only time in history NIV had been right about anything. <laughs> well, I must say, you have to give credit where credit is due. I compliment the NIV translators on that observation. I give them discredit for a thousand other, but at any rate. <laughs> You, you got your touche in, Pete. <laughs> Ling? Um, I'm really curious about the narrative of the loss of the child. Um, I know we see this child as a consequence of sin, um, but I'm just wondering, is there a possibility of a theme of substitution, of the son being a substitutionary atonement for his father? Um, no. <laughs> no. Why not? How could a how could a creature pay or atone for another creature's sin? You can't have that. I'm not saying that it is a clear cut case. Is there a theme? Because 
because of what Nathan says, the Lord, the Lord will take away your sin, you shall not die. However, your son, this child is born to you, shall surely die. And the child dies, and he almost identifies with that child, and it's that. Yes, he's identified with death because it is a common lot of sinners. So David is conformed unto death, even as a child is conformed unto death. So I will go that far as to say there is a reciprocal conformity here, only it is a conformity of David laying there in a state of mortification as if he is approximating the death of the child. But there's no atonement motif here. There's an imitation motif, or shall we say being drawn into the circle of dying unto himself as the child dies unto itself. But no covering over of his, of his iniquity. The covering over of his iniquity is going to come from the atoning sacrifices that he brings up to the presence of the Lord, to the substitutionary uh, means which are appointed for that, not the child. Not the son. No. Because this isn't the firstborn son. It may be the firstborn son to him in Bathsheba, but it's not his firstborn son, so that fails in itself. Yeah, it's the firstborn son of him in Bathsheba. Right. Um, nothing in the seventh day that the son is raised and he is raised. Uh, the significance of the seventh day is the fact that he does not receive circumcision, and so consequently the absence of circumcision or the presence or absence of baptism makes no difference in the de destiny of a child of election. This is obviously a child of election, but there are child of non ch children of non-election. Esau have I hated. Esau was hated from his mother's womb, so there was never going to be any election of Esau even though he was circumcised. No connection to the covenant with the house of David uh, concerning the son. I, I think you can look at him as son in terms of God's adoption of him as son, because when David says he shall go to me, he, I shall go to him, I think he's received that assurance by some kind of special revelation that's not recorded in the text. Now, he couldn't know the mind of God about the destiny of the child unless God had told him that in some way, or he was assured of that. Um, so uh, I do believe the child went to heaven, assuredly went to heaven. And you could say that broadly on the basis of that fact that God is going to be related to him as a father to a son, yes, but not in terms of a uh, typological son. I don't think so. I mean, I mean, you're going to have to overwhelm me with a lot more than that. Uh, <laughs> God is perilously close to allegory, Ling. Scott, did you have something to say? Totally different question about the son. Um, do you think there's any significance that that son is elect as opposed to Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah who all appear not to be elect? And then, is there, and then of course, you got Solomon who appears to be elected. Well, uh, only in the sense that there's a contrastive relationship before them. I mean, what are you driving at? Are you seeing something more there? Well, I'm not seeing suggesting you're seeing anything narratively. No, I, I'm not. I, I'm, only, I'm only putting out that fourfold phrase there, which is ominous in, uh, in, in the anticipation of these four persons that are going to receive the consequences of David's uh, iniquity. Pete? you think there's any significance in the fact that in the genealogy in Matthew, the women that are mentioned are of the other ones are mentioned by name, but uh, it says of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
once again reminding us of the nefarious character of some of them, including Tamar uh, uh, also. Um, uh, but uh, uh, it just demonstrates the wonderful grace of God in using women who had been uh, sinful in their own uh, character at some part in their life, but are entered into the genealogy of Christ. So it it could help support my suggestion that maybe Bathsheba is in fact a penitent believer and uh, her name appearing at the end of this 12th chapter uh, supports the closure as well as the enfolding of her into the covenant of grace. Possibly. Anything else? Yes, if you're free to go, if you uh, need to go, uh, Ling, one more. Some people argue that in um, Nathan's parable, that Bathsheba is portrayed as kind of an innocent sheep. Um, that that maybe the reading um, that she had no complicity in the sin of adultery is uh, reflected there in Nathan's parable. Yeah, I'm I'm aware of that interpretation, and the comment is that because she's portrayed as this uh, uh, very meek and mild ewe lamb, that uh, she was not necessarily complicit in the adultery. I think the point of the parable is the contrastive relationship between the powerful and the powerless. I don't think you push the parable beyond those necessary bounds. In other words, the the story is told in order to get David to see the injustice of what has happened. He did not try to work out every detail of the parable and match it up with an incident in the actual historical sequence itself. It's the broad picture, not the detailed or minutiae picture, which is also true of Jesus' parables. If you look at the way Augustine handles Jesus' parables, he handles them in terms of finding an identity with almost every detail. Whereas, as Ritterboss will point out in his coming to the kingdom, the point of the parables is to get the broad picture of the coming or presence of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of that. We work out of that. So we're out of this parable, we're going to work out of this justice, injustice, oppressor, oppressed, vulnerability, invulnerable uh, motif, not trying to match up every. That's my response. All right, well, next week, same time, same station.